All right, if you have your copy of Scripture, I would ask that you turn with me to Esther chapter 2. It's an Old Testament book, Esther chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I need a kid. Uh, we love having you elementary kids in here. You got a couple more weeks at least. I'm really bad at the calendar. Brian, you're not a kid. I'm with you though. All right, so I need, all right. I love your enthusiasm. Come on up. Um, I hope that your parents are not angry with me for this. Um, but I have a challenge for you. Do you see what we have here? Are you excited by this? Do you kids all see this? Oh, Oh, all right. So here's the thing. You have five seconds. We're going to count her down. We're going to be fair about this. Give her five full seconds. We'll count it down. You have five seconds to find the very best candy in there. Pick out which is the very best candy. You have five seconds to find it. You find it, you get to keep it, okay? All right, are you ready? It's got to be the very best. Are you ready? All right, go ahead and get ready. Get ready, like hands hovering. All right, you got five seconds. It's okay if you make a little bit of a mess. Not too much, but a little bit. <laughs> All right, are we ready to count? Yes. All right, and five, five four, four, three, three two, two, one. one. <laughs> really? Oh. I expected so much more. You like these, but I said to get the very best. Listen, this will change your life. This will change your life. Take that. That's the best. All right, let's give her a hand. All right. I cannot believe you didn't, like, dig in there. You have no idea what's under there. Man. All right. Well, I asked her to find the very best piece of candy. Um, But here's the thing. How, How in the world could you know what is the best candy? And she picked up one and she said, I like these. Like, but I didn't ask what you like. I asked you to get the best piece of candy. But there's the tension, right? And we love this in our postmodern culture. Like what's true for you is true for you and what's true for me is true for me. So who are you to say that the best piece of candy is this one that I can't officially endorse, but you know, it is. It actually is the very best. But that's, that's what I think. And you might think something different. You might think, like her, that whatever these are is the best thing. And so we just get into this tension of like, well, what's actually true? What is the best? If there is a best, what is it? It's different for me. It's different for you. And so you get into all of this kind of like idea of relativity, that truth is just relative. And so how can we actually know what is true? It depends on your context and all this stuff. And so because of examples like that, we're like, there's actually some validity to that. But then if you press on it, it breaks down. And you know, I was like, there actually has to be real truth. Because things like the law of non-contradiction, like there cannot be two best pieces of candy. Either they're both not, or one is and the other is not. There's, it's just a logical necessity. And so we have that tension coming into this, this, this idea of like, well, what is actually the best? And I want us to carry that into the text today, because we're going to be in Esther chapter 2. And that idea of choosing the best is going to resurface for us here. Um, but here's the other thing. Um, Kids, I want you to know this. Look at me. I love eye contact, kids. Look at me. If I lose you for the rest, hear me on this. Looking for the best piece of candy can be a little daunting. There's a lot that you don't see there. And she may be wondering, like, what did I not see that's under that stack of candy? God sees you. He never lost sight of you. And he never will. And he loves you. Do you hear me? God sees you, he will never lose sight of you, and he loves you. 
All right, enjoy the activity pack. I hope you can listen, um, but I know what's going to happen. Parents, kids are not listening. Parents, you're listening. Um, I don't want to take that home. So if you're okay with your child having a piece, send them my way after the service, okay? All right, they'll forget by then. It'll be okay. (laughs) You're welcome. I'm going on vacation afterwards, so you guys have fun. All right. Um, So we are in Esther, and before we jump into the text in chapter 2, I need to catch us up because we're doing things a little different. Usually we go through entire books um, of the Bible and things like that, but this summer we're jumping around through some narratives of the Old Testament, looking at how God is faithful, his perfect provision. He always provides, and so we see that in so many different ways. As we look in the book of Esther, we're going to spend the next few weeks on this, and so today, I need to kind of bring you into what this story is about, and we'll, we'll camp in a little bit of an area and really set the stage for what's to come as Pastor Reggie and Pastor Chris move us forward in this. Um, but so we'll start with just saying, like, here's the setting. You know, in a story, you've got to know the setting. So the setting of this story, the book of Esther, is this is taking place in the Persian Empire. It's actually largely in the capital city of Susa. And so this is the Persian Empire in the middle of the 4th century BCE. So before Common Era, this is 4th century Persian Empire. It is a massive empire at this point, And this is about 100 years after the exile, after Judah was brought into Babylonian exile, but now we're under Persian control. And so some Jews, because of that exile, were taken out of Jerusalem, out of Judah. They were brought into these other areas. And so there are some Jews actually here, Jews being the Hebrew people, the Israelites, the people of God. And so these people who had this covenant relationship with Yahweh, the one true God, Because of their sin, the rebellion, they broke the covenant. The exile came, the curse that God promised, it's going to come. They're brought out of their home that they had been promised, the promised land. And they've been brought, they're dispersed throughout different places. But there are some here in the capital of the Persian Empire. And so here we are with some Jews here. There's this king is here. This is a name for you. Ahasuerus. Can you say that with me? Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is the king you may know him from your world history class as King Xerxes. Like, yeah, that sounds a lot more my style. King Xerxes, we'll go with that one. So King Xerxes is king, and King Xerxes is like most kings of massive empires. He's quite full of himself. Um, he loves to put on a show and loves for people to kind of give him all the praise and so forth. And so in his third year of his reign, he's gone through a few things, but nothing crazy. But in the third year of his reign, he wants to flex He wants to show off his power, his might, his wealth. And so in this year, he has a 180-day-long party. It's this massive festival for 180 days. It's everything goes, guys. Like he tells the bartenders, literally it's, it's in scripture, he tells the people who are in charge of the drinks, whatever anyone wants and as much as they want. All right, let's keep this party going. It's open storehouse. Let's just have a massive party. It's wildly excessive. He is showing off. And then you get to the crisis. So that's the setting. The crisis now comes about because during this party, towards the end of it, there's a seven day long portion of it where things are really ramped up and the king is feeling a little bit because he's had quite a bit to drink. And so he sends for Queen Vashti. Queen, can you say Vashti? Yeah, all kinds of fun names today. Laugh at me if you want, but here we go. Queen Vashti is having a women's party, um, which is kind of weird and actually kind of foretelling of some things that are about to happen, but like there's this massive party and she's like, let me have a feast for the ladies. And so they're not in the same room at this time, but the king is getting a little good feeling and he's like, I want to show off some more. Queen Vashti is gorgeous. She is a beautiful woman. He knows that and he wants to flaunt that. 
And so he sends some of his servants, go get Queen Vashti and bring her, tell her to come with her royal crown. And what he wants to do is parade her around in front of this audience. And most scholars, if you can follow with me adults, say that when he said, bring her with her royal crown, that's all he wanted her to come with. And so he wants to parade this woman, objectifying her, so that the kingdom that's amassed here, all the best of the best, all the elites, can all watch and see her beauty and enjoy the show that she puts on. And to her credit, she says, no, I'm not coming. And so now imagine a king with the power to have a 180-day-long party, and his queen just said, I'm not coming. He's angry. He's very angry. And so he issues this decree that this queen Vashti is no longer queen. In fact, she is exiled, but within the kingdom. She can stay in the kingdom, but she never can come into my sight. So she's been stripped of her power, stripped of her authority, everything that she had, her title, it's taken from her, and she can never be in the presence of the king again. So now there's no longer a queen. And so having done this, he calms down a little, and this is where we get the plan. So we have the setting, the crisis, and now the plan. The plan is they're going to seek out a woman, quote, more worthy than Queen Vashti. And so what they do is they essentially launch this kingdom-wide beauty pageant. We're going to find the most beautiful girl. Like, we thought that was it, but clearly she cannot be it. So we've taken everything from her. We're going to find an even more beautiful girl. We're going to find a replacement. We'll find you a queen. We're going to throw this beauty pageant. And so now all these contestants are going to find all these young virgins and bring them together, the best of the best, get them all glamorous, and then parade them in front of the king one night at a time, one person at a time. And he'll choose which one he wants. And so this is where we pick up. And that being said, we have the setting, the crisis, and the plan. So now we pick up in chapter two. Look at verse five with me. Chapter two, verse five. It says, in the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. He had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconiah of Judah into exile. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin, Hadassah, that is Esther, because she had no father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good looking. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. And so here we are. All of a sudden, new characters are interjected into the story. They're introduced. We see Mordecai and Esther, or her Hebrew, Hebrew name. And so it describes Esther as having a beautiful figure and was extremely good looking. Sounds like a viable candidate for this beauty pageant. But they live here in the capital. Mordecai, her cousin, has legally adopted her, so he's likely much older Esther loses her mother and father. She's an orphan. This is, this is the tragedy of her life. And yet her cousin steps in older and says, I will adopt you. And so he brings her. He's now her guardian. He's protecting her, providing for her. He knows that she's beautiful and all these things. And so look at verse eight. When the king's command and edict became public knowledge, and when many young women were gathered at the fortress of Susa under Haggai's supervision, Esther was taken to the palace into the supervision of Haggai, keeper of the women. That's quite the title, right? You want to be the keeper of the women? No, please don't. (laughs) The young woman pleased him and gained his favor so that he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. He assigned seven hand-picked female servants to her from the palace and transferred her and her servants to the harem's best quarters. 
Esther did not reveal her ethnicity or her family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. Every day, Mordecai took a walk in front of the harem's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and to see what was happening to her. So she's been caught up in this beauty pageant. And the way this beauty pageant works is these young virgin girls would be brought together to this harem and they would receive these beauty treatments. So this is probably the only part of the story that you ladies would enjoy. It's like having spa day, but forever. Like just cosmetic treatments, all this stuff. You get your facial, your manicure, all this stuff, just day after day, trying to make you more and more attractive. But the tragedy in that is you're trying to become more and more attractive for one sole purpose, that you want to win the king's heart. That when you have your turn, that you get to go spend the night with the king, he says, that's the one. And now Esther, this Jew, is brought into this beauty pageant. She actually starts to gain favor with the keeper of the women. And so he actually gives her servants and puts her in the best room, all this stuff. And so she's, you, you should be reading this and like, there's something special about her. She's been introduced into the story, so I know this has got to be going somewhere with her. But now she's gaining favor amongst the people. Like, they, they like her. There's something about her. And so this is where we, we find this Esther character becoming a favored participant in this forced beauty pageant and Mordecai keeps connected to her. He's kind of doing these like subversive little walks where he comes by and he's like, hey, how you doing? Everything okay? What are they doing? Like, what's the plan here? But he's, he's trying to stay connected to her to know how she's doing all this stuff and he tells her not to reveal that she's a Jew. Why, Mordecai? Why would Mordecai not want her to reveal that she's a Jew as she's in this beauty pageant? I think we'll find out. So verse 12. During the year before each young woman's turn to go to King Ahasuerus, the harem regulation required her to receive beauty treatments with oil of myrrh for six months and then with perfumes and cosmetics for another six months. When the young woman would go to the king, she was given whatever she requested to take with her from the harem to the palace. She would go in the evening and in the morning she would return to a second harem under the supervision of the king's eunuch Shashgaz, keeper of the concubines. She never went to the king again unless he desired her and summoned her by name. Wow. Talk about over-the-top preparations. So much goes into these young ladies. These young ladies have so much done to them to prepare for this one night where they're just going to be abusively used and then discarded to be effectively just virtually widows that the king would have his way with them for one night, enjoy their company, and decide, not that one, and off they go to a second harem where they will spend the rest of their life as a concubine. Maybe, maybe the king might say, hey, I remember this name, bring her back. You see the number of women whose lives would be absolutely ruined by this for the insatiable appetite of a king who just wants to flex and got angry with his wife and cast her aside. And now he's going, one by one, this beauty pageant. Whose turn is it tonight? Uh, call her a seven. Nah, she's not going to be the one. I'll have fun with her and then take her away tomorrow. He's got to pick the best. And so here he is. And again, like, how fair is it? Pick the best one. Like, if we went around the room and you're like, hey, describe the most beautiful person would we all say the same things? No, some of us would be like, uh, brunette, blonde, uh, tall, dark, light, like all over the place. We all, like beauty is just this constantly fleeting measure. Like there, there's not a clear metric on what is beautiful. 
And so here's this king that gets to haphazardly decide the fate of so many women. Just night after night, they're just a commodity to consume and then discard. But this is awful. This is absolutely awful. And so look at verse 15. Esther was the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had adopted her as his own daughter. When her turn came to go to the king, she did not ask for anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, suggested. It's pretty wise, right? Talk to the person who knows the person. Esther gained favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Ahasuerus in the palace in the 10th month, the month to Beth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. The king held a great banquet for all his officials and staff. It was Esther's banquet. He freed his provinces from tax payments and gave gifts worthy of the king's bounty. This is exciting. Like, she won. Esther is the queen of the beauty pageant. She wins the crown. She's getting the favor of everyone who sees her, including the king. The king puts the crown on her. You're the one. But as you see, like the celebration of this, they throw a party where he's like, hey, tax write-off for everybody. I'm feeling generous. I got a queen. This is awesome. So we should be feeling like celebratory in this moment. Like, this is great for Esther. Like, she's not going to be discarded. Like, how many others? Speaking of that, did you catch the timeline here? The party when he discarded Vashti was in the third year of his reign. What year is it now? The 10th month, the seventh year. So for four years, this man has been systematically been going through young lady after young lady. Nah, nah. So you have to wonder how many young women's lives have been ruined and now they just live in waiting like a widow, just stuck in the second harem. That's so awful. I mean, this is absolutely terrible. But here's Esther, and she wins the pageant. And so we can feel a little bit of hope. The, the king chooses her. She is now queen, and a party is thrown. And so if you've made it to this point, you may be wondering, where's God at in all this? Like, I give you the summary of how we get to this point, the setting, the crisis, the plan, Esther now becoming queen. Have we mentioned God? I don't want to give away too much for the guys that are going to preach the next couple weeks, but God doesn't get mentioned in this whole book. And that should be a little bothersome to us. Wait a second. (laughs) Why is God not mentioned in here? What does this have to do with God? And I'm spoil a little, but hopefully not too much. But here's the thing. Joseph, if you know the scriptures, Joseph was brought to Egypt against his will and brought to the Egyptian court ultimately. Daniel, against his will in exile, was brought to the Babylonian court, and now here is Esther, brought to the Persian court. Why? Because God in his providence and his sovereignty has arranged it to be such, and that is for the sake of his purposes and his people. But we really do need to wrestle with the tension of why is God not mentioned as the one who did this? So far, it just sounds like a lot of happenstance that she happened to be attractive to the king and Former queen stood her ground. Good for her. Didn't go well for her. But like, just a lot of bad things are happening here. Why is God not mentioned? Why is God not mentioned in the entire book of Esther? There is no explicit instruction from God. There is no explicit teaching about God that is included in this book. 
In fact, again, not to give away too much, but just know this is where it's going. And we'll keep in mind that kids are in the room. But this seems to be just a historical record of the Jews narrowly escaping genocide. And they do so through some super sketchy extra-biblical sensuality, exploitation, murder, and drunkenness. That's the book of Esther. How is this in the Bible? Why? Why would this be included? And it comes down to this, bottom line. Though sometimes hard to see, God works out everything according to his plan. Though sometimes hard to see, God works out everything according to his plan. And we can trust him in that. God's sovereignty is actually all over the book of Esther. It's all over in these wild twists, these ironic turns, these gracious provisions that only God could bring about. That when we read the book, we see no explicit mention of God, and yet we cannot help but read the book and say, oh, wow, (laughs) that was totally you, God. That's amazing. That you would work in all of that calamity. That you would work in all of these crazy, awful situations and people. That you would work it for your glory and our good as your people. And isn't that really the gospel? You think about this, Peter actually preached it pretty forcefully in the book of Acts when he says, this Jesus Christ whom you killed, but you did so according to the plan of God. That it was in the plan of God that the only innocent man to have ever walked this earth was murdered. That that was God's plan and that is our salvation. That Jesus would die this brutal barbaric death like a criminal and yet he was innocent and that was our salvation. Kids, can you look at me? For just a few minutes, I want you to track with me on this. I want you to see how God works his good news out through terrible situations with terrible people. Because the gospel is really the good news that God created everything good. You think of it as four G's, okay? The first G is good. God is good. We have to start with that. We cannot start the gospel with everything's broken and awful. No, it starts with, you're going to get into a lot of problems in today's culture if you start there. It starts with God is good and he created everything good. He is good and he created us good. He made us good. He made creation good. But we can look around and all of a few seconds realize it's not all good anymore. And so what happened? This is the second G, it's guilt. That guilt came into the world. And that guilt is because we brought it in that we have fallen for temptation, that we have sinned, we have rebelled against God, we have disobeyed. And so we don't keep God's rules, so to speak. We don't do what we were created to do, and so we're guilty, that we don't live for God like we should. And so we do this in a thousand ways every day. Some of it is as subliminal as just where our heart's posture is. But sometimes I'm just living for Kevin. And sometimes you're just living for yourself. When who should we be living for? God. You're made to to image him, to tell the world, to proclaim to the world who he is and the way that we live. Made in his image. And yet, here's the thing, kids. When you lie, a little lie. Like, did you eat that when I told you not to? I don't know. Little lies. Do you know what you're saying about God when you're made in his image? You're saying that God is a liar. And so he made us good, but now we are guilty that we mess up. He knows that. He sees us mess up. But then there's the third G. It's grace. That he is gracious. That means he, he should 
treat us with just wrath, but instead he loves us. Look at me, look at me, kids. He loves you. God loves you. When you don't deserve to be loved, he loves you. Yes, exactly. He loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for you. And so Jesus lived and he was never guilty. He was always good and he died in our place. And so if we will just trust him, if we'll put our trust in him, turn from our sins, say, I am a sinner, but Jesus, you are Lord and I believe you died and you rose again. That's what scripture says. There's this promise that if we confess Jesus is Lord, believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That God in his grace would save us broken sinners if we just believe in him. Confess, this is what you must do, kids. Look at me. Confess, Jesus is Lord. He is the boss of everything. And we are sinners and he loves us. And so we trust him for salvation. He died and he rose again. And we do that. We do exactly what she did. This is the fourth G. We live a life of gratitude that in response to what God has done in view of the mercies of God, as we've called it for the last couple of weeks, we give our life a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is our spiritual act of worship that we live a life of gratitude for what God has done that we could never do for ourselves. He has saved us. So put your trust in him. He made us good. We are guilty and yet he is gracious and now we live out of gratitude. He loves us. And the first thing you need to do when you believe that and you confess that is go be baptized as a way of saying to the world, this is my hope. This is my salvation. I'm with Jesus. I'm on his team. And so I go under the water like he was put into the tomb and I come out of the water like he came out of the tomb because I'm gonna live with him forever. I get to be with God, full of gratitude for all of eternity. But now, how can we know that's true? How can we actually know that that is true? My wife and I were, um, were told about this show that we've, I, I love it. I think, I think she really just humors me in watching it. But it's a magician and he's really good. And so, you know, magicians, it's not real magic. They're, they're doing tricks. It's illusions, things like that. And so we're watching this show, and, and there comes a point when he, he, he brings the camera crew, and they're in a wrestling facility. These are professional wrestlers training, and they're having this conversation. He's basically like, you know, we're, we're actually very similar. The whole thing here, they call it magicians or wrestlers. Like, you know, wrestling is not real. <laughs> like, but people love it. They still watch it. And so how can you watch something knowing it's not real, like a magician. Like, I know it's not real, but I love it. It's so intriguing. They're so good at deceiving me, and I, I don't know why. I like being deceived. It's weird. And here's the thing. This is what they say. Like, we're not asking anybody to actually believe this. We're just asking you to willfully suspend your disbelief. This is all we're asking. For the willful suspension of disbelief. We're not asking you to actually believe it. Just suspend that disbelief for a while to enjoy this. As you come to church and you hear people like me preach this gospel and you look around and people are so into it, they're raising their hands like they must be feeling something I'm not feeling. I don't know, what is all this? Like, is it like a magic show? Is it like professional wrestling? It's where it's like, if you could just, just suspend your disbelief for a moment, you'll enjoy this experience. No, that is not what this is. Um, there's, a, um, there's this tree in my grandfather's yard growing up that I, I recently saw it, and it's like towering. But when I was growing up, it was just like 25, 30 feet tall. And I remember that being the climbing tree, and so I'd climb up in that thing every time I was over there. And there was one day as I'm climbing up, I'm up there playing around, it's time to go down. If you've ever climbed a tree, it's way harder to go down than up, you know? 
And so I'm coming down and like, I've got a plan in my mind of like here, 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 here. Something went wrong somewhere along the way and I'm coming down pretty fast. And as I come down, there's a, a Y, a fork in the tree and my foot catches it just right. And as my foot catches it, it like locks onto my foot and I fly backwards. And now I'm upside down, hanging in the tree and the ground's a few feet below me, but I'm just stuck. I can't get my foot out and so little me, by myself, again, this is the days when we could play outside by ourselves, <laughs> um, by myself, and even if I'm yelling, that's like you talking, so I have no chance of getting anyone's attention. I'm flailing around there, trying to get up there. I realize, like, I can't get it out. And about the time that I'm feeling like I'm going to pass out, like, it's getting dizzy and all this stuff, blood rushing to my head, and I'm just upside down like this. The road's out there, and this guy comes driving over, and he stops, somehow sees me. And this massive man, like I'll never forget seeing this man as I'm like getting kind of out of it and just watching this man walk from his truck towards me. No idea who this man is. And as this man's walking towards me, I think, this is it. Stranger danger. This is, it. This is happening. This is, this is the end. I'm just always dramatic like that. But you know what he does? With one hand, he reaches up and he grabs my foot, picks it up, pulls me out, and gently lays me on the ground and kind of chuckles and walks away. <laughs> Do you know how much of the gospel is there? Here's the thing. If you were guilty, and we all are, and there's a God who would come, and you imagine, helpless, dangling from a tree, there's nothing I can do to save myself. I am utterly stuck. And here comes God, walking into this mess where I'm stuck. And I'm in this mess because I defied him. He has every right to be mad at me. He has every bit of power to do whatever he wants in this situation. And instead of executing justice on me, he gently lifts me up and he takes my place on a tree. And he dies for me on that tree and says, we'll live forever together because I love you. But what did I do to deserve your love? Nothing, but I love you. Do you know that he loves you? Do you know that God loves you? Do you know that he actually comes to you when you are stuck and you're dead in your sin and he loves you and he dies for you? so that you could have life forevermore. This is how Paul said it to the church in Rome. He said, but God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not because of any kind of exceptionalism that I have or do not have. You know, if I was in that beauty pageant, do you think I'd win? Don't say that. That's okay. <laughs> I wouldn't. That's okay. I have enough humility to know I stand no chance. But God loves me. Not because I would win any kind of an award, but because he says he loves me and it has always been so. He has always loved me and he will never stop loving me and that is true for you. So will you love him? Will you trust him? He has made us beautiful and holy. He is making us beautiful and holy. He will finish what he began. He is preparing a great feast that we have been invited to. I would not have been invited to that feast that the king threw. But there's the king of kings who is throwing a feast that I'm invited to and you are too. 
So will you accept the invitation? Will you believe that he loves you like this so much that he died for you? Confess him as Lord. He is king. Turn from your sin. Trust him. Know that he died and he rose again. And we get to be with him forever. He will make us beautiful and oh, the party that is to come. So skeptic, seeker, stumbling saint, doubting saint, will you believe this good news? And follower of Jesus, who do you need to share this good news with? And will you do it? Let's pray. God, we love you so much. I'm so thankful that this is the kind of God that you are. The only true God, the God of gods, that you're gracious, that you have made us good and yet we rebelled and we became guilty and yet you were gracious that you have stepped in because you love us and you've made a way. And so God, let us live lives of gratitude to just give back to you the life that you have given to us. I thank you for the book of Esther and how it helps us to know that we can be honest that in just awful situations and circumstances, when it doesn't seem clear that you're present, we can know that you really are. You are really working out everything according to your plan. You have the power to do that. Help us, God, to trust that. But help us to be people, like we see your saints in the scriptures, that rejoice and consider it a privilege and an honor to suffer for you. That we could be that weird in our culture that we would gladly lay our lives down for the sake of others, but primarily for you because you laid your life down for us. So we praise you and thank you. I love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.